I'd like you please to take your Bibles and uh, open them at Matthew chapter 18. <coughs> that will be our, our center point this morning, Matthew chapter 18. that just open there for a moment please because um, what we're going to speak about this morning is the subject of children children what does the Bible say about children and in particular we will be focusing on Matthew chapter 18 where the Lord Jesus takes a little child and he uses the child as an object lesson and gives us five lessons that we need to learn from little children Understand the child is the object lesson. The lessons are drawn from what the child is, features that relate to the child, which are then applied to the people of God. So that in our meditation and in our consideration this morning, we will be lifting up children as they are in the mind of God and in the eye of heaven and in the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. After the service, we know that Demetro and Oksana will bring their little one, Solomea, as they wish to dedicate her to the Lord. Now, understand that this is not a church ordinance, not at all, but it is an expression of the desire of the parents for their children, a child they want to see brought up for the Lord. And we as a church join with them in that, and I trust that every child here is a subject of someone's prayer in the congregation. That's normal, you know. And it's normal that you and I should have a heart for children like that. They're constantly in our prayers. If you don't love children and you call yourself a Christian, I'm sorry, but there's something wrong because you're not like the Master. We'll see that as we unfold the scripture. You see, it's a bit like when when Hannah brought the child um, Samuel into the temple. She wanted to lend him to the Lord all the days of her life, didn't didn't she? She brought him to the priest and she said, look, here he is. He's going to minister before the Lord, just a child, a little boy, girded with a linen ephod. And we know great things were done for God because a child was dedicated to the Lord. I don't know if you've ever read, of course you've read, but have ever realized when you've read in Luke's gospel where uh, Mary and Joseph brought the Lord Jesus into the uh, temple. You remember Eli was there and Anna was there and a wonderful picture of the The child Jesus, just 40 days old. They were bringing that child into the temple. Why were they coming? They were coming for the purification of Mary, yes, but they were also coming because there was an ordinance which said every male is to be consecrated, holy to the Lord. That's a beautiful picture there of a, a consecrating service or a dedication service, if you like, of none other than the Lord Jesus Christ as man, as child, as boy, as man. Holy for the Lord. How true that is. How true that is. We need to realize this. The children are very, very important in the whole program and the whole economy of God. And when God works in a significant way, so often children are involved. And not only are children involved, but children are blessed. And when Satan works in a significant way, children are always harmed. All right? You see that in the history of Scripture. Pharaoh, what did he do? He took the male children of the Israelites and he wanted them killed at birth. And what did Herod do? A terrible slaughter of the children in Israel under two years of age. 
And in the, the pictures in Revelation, what did we see? We saw the, the dragon crouching before the woman, wanting to devour the babe that was going to be born. And as you see Satan working in our present world, what are we seeing? Children being destroyed. It's incredible. They want it written into the constitution of a mighty nation that the nation has a right to kill its unborn children. A constitutional right to slay a babe one day away from taking its first breath of fresh air. And they call it a woman's right. And they define motherhood. How satanic is that? When Satan's at work, children are always hurt. When God is at work, children are dignified, used, blessed, and elevated. Very beautiful to see. It goes right through scripture, and I don't want to get too sidetracked, but the truth is this. Right in the very beginning, how did he say he would work through the seed of the woman? You turn from Genesis into, into um, Exodus, and how did God work to bring his children out? Through a child that was born to godly parents who saw their child beautiful for God, and they hid him, Moses and the bulrushes. From that child came the mighty deliverance. Keep on going through scripture. Get through the book of Judges. See what a terrible state things were in. And then one day there was a godly woman who wanted a man-child for the Lord. Who wanted to see some sort of deliverance and bring some sort of blessing to the people of God. And through the child Samuel that was born, that was lent to the Lord all the days of his life, there came a mighty deliverance for Israel. We need godly men and women who see their children beautiful for God, used for God, to be able to raised up by God for the deliverance of God's people and the proclamation of his judgment, his truth, and of his word. You can go on from there into the book of the Psalms, and it's just absolutely lovely the way in which it's the psalmist sings of children. Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength to silence, to squirt still the enemy and the avenger. And he says that later on in the 124th Psalm, I think it is, children are the heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. And then the Lord Jesus comes, and in his earthly ministry, what does he do? He dignifies the little children. That's what he does. He says, suffer the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And you move from the days of his ministries to the, day, to the present days. And as we go into Matthew 18, we'll see the lessons, the timely lessons for now to be learned from a little child. Or if you want to go past this present day and you want to go right into the future scenes of glory and of blessing, you'll find that the prophets describe the future scenes in terms of the presence of children. Have you ever noticed that? When that rod shall come out of the stem of Jesse, when that king shall reign in righteousness, righteousness the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness, the girdle of his reins. It says there that creation will be redeemed, that the animals will no longer slay each other, the lion will lay down with the lamb, they'll eat straw like the, the oxen. A little child will be able to lead them, and the weaned child will put his hand into the viper's den, and it won't harm him. The children will be there safe and prominent in that lovely picture. And if you haven't got enough out of that, go to Zechariah chapter 8. When the prophet describes the society that will exist in the day of future blessing, he says there'll be the old men and the women on the streets of Jerusalem and the old men will be there with their staff in their hand for age and the boys and girls will be playing on the streets of Jerusalem. In that happy society where they are safe, in that society where they can express the exuberance and the spontaneity of a child. 
So, as it were, that lovely scene of future blessing is described in a place where children's voices can be heard. Now, that's a good start, isn't it? To coming to understand what the Lord Jesus did in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18. Now, let's read and see where it goes. Verse 1, At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, I want to read that the way they were meaning to express it. And I'll put in the word then, because that there is, the word then is in the force of the original, more so than we've got it here. There's a sense of perplexity in their question. There's a genuine question. Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him. Notice that. He just called, the child just came. Wasn't persuaded, wasn't coerced. The picture is, he just called a little child. Just one of those that was in the crowd with him, you know. Wasn't a special little child that was all dressed up in a pretty white frock, or a boy, should we say, who was in his finest, you know, with his hair all slicked down. Just one of them off the street. Just come here. The little boy came, and he sets him in the midst, and he says this. I want you to learn this. Verily I say unto you, except you be converted and become as little children. That's lesson one. You shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoso shall receive one, that's lesson two, such a little child in my name receives me. That's a profound verse. But whoso shall offend one, that's lesson three, that is caused to stumble, make such a little child like this that I have got with me to sin. Better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, that he was drowned in the depths of the sea. Oh, woe to the world. It's going to be a sad place because offences must needs come, but woe to that man by whom the offence comes. If you're anything like that man it's in, and your hand's a problem to you or your eye's a problem to you or get your hand or your foot, you cut them off. It's better to, to cast them from thee for it's better for thee to enter into life maimed or halt, lame, maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if your eye offends you, pluck it out. Cast it from it. Better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. If your hand or your foot or your eyes are going to cause you to cause a, enable you to make a child to stumble, get rid of them, better off. Take heed that you despise not. There's the next lesson, the fourth lesson. Despise not one of these little ones. For I say unto you, this is a beautiful verse, that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. That's lovely, isn't it? Then he says this incredible statement. And tells this amazing parable. And you say, well, how does it fit into the context? I'll show you if I possibly can. For the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost. How think ye if a man have a hundred sheep? And notice this. And one of them be gone astray or one of them goes astray. Doesn't he leave the ninety and nine and goes into the mountains and seek that which is gone astray? And if so be he finds it. It's not until he finds it. There's a certain doubt here. If so be he find it, verily I say unto you, he rejoices more of that sheep 
and of the ninety and nine that went not astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So if we have, you must become like one and you must receive one and you must not stumble one and you must not despise one. Here it is, make sure you don't lose one. That's the point of this. Make sure that you don't lose one. Okay, let's go back to the beginning. They ask this question, who then is the greatest? Now, why do they ask that question? You know, And there is a perplexity in the way they're, they... It's a genuine inquiry. Because, you see, yeah, they've been disputing who should be the greatest among them. They had been doing that, by the way. All right? So you say, well, that's why the Lord gave that answer that he, and took the little child. Look, it's only part of the story. You want to get it behind it a bit more deeply than that. Because, you see, he's just told them that he is going to die. He's broken that news to them just a little while prior to this. And that has absolutely shattered them, really. And then they've heard him teaching about the kingdom of heaven and using terms like, you know, um, you've got to be poor in spirit. Mm. Blessed are the meek. Mm. Being reviled, suffering, rejection. They're going to hear him say strange things like, he that would be great among you, let him become the servant of all. And that's like a contradiction of terms, really. In other words, you've got to be great, you've got to go down. You've got to go up, you've got to go down. It doesn't quite fit their thinking. It's very confusing. After all, their, their notion was that they had this Messiah come to them and it was still strong in their thinking. This was someone who would rule, who would rise up in power, who would overthrow the power of Rome, who would certainly sort out Herod, and then establish this great hierarchy, as it were, of power and greatness and authority ruling over the world. Christ would be king. Peter would be prime minister. The apostles would all have various roles in administration. And this great mighty edifice of Rome would crash down in the face of something that's more splendid and tremendous. And he will reign wherever the sun. And yet they've heard this sort of talk and they've seen this sort of behaviour and I mean, clearly it doesn't look as though there's any rival for Caesar around here at the present time. If you were here with the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 18, it doesn't look much hope of a Roman overthrow. After all, there's no rival. There's nothing to match the greatness of the society around them. Right. So they ask that question from that. Well, what, what's the whole concept of greatness? It's so contrary to anything we've ever thought of. It doesn't make sense. Who then is the greatest? All right? And Jesus calls a little child. He says, come here. And he puts him in the midst. This child comes, and you just get, get the picture of Matthew 18. I keep telling you, think in pictures, and we did that in Revelation, and I very much encourage it in the Gospels. Put yourself there, right? Right just there you are, and you're looking on. What do you see? In the center there is it where you see the Lord Jesus, and there's a little child with him. I don't know, was the little child, it's a little child, maybe he was sitting on his knee. Maybe he just had his arms around him. He wanted to draw attention to that child because there were things about that child that had bear the answer to their question, had the answer to their question and bear such wonderful lessons that are relevant for us all even today. So there he is, the Lord Jesus, the child. Around him there's just 12 men None of them are really very significant. You know, greatness, and you look at this little strange company. I mean, the Lord Jesus in the middle, greatness. Well, he's, he's the Nazarene. Hmm. 
He, he, he's the one who, uh, he's just a carpenter, you know, and he's just wearing ordinary sort of clothes that everybody else wore at the same time. There's 12 men around him, and they're a strange group. There's three young men who are fishermen, isn't there? And then there's another fellow that's a, been a tax gatherer, and he's not much in society. There was a physician and a historian there, but, you know, they weren't much chop in a military society. That, like Rome, they didn't rate for much in the social scale. And then there was this other doubting man there, like Thomas. He's a bit of a concrete thinker, really. Um, not, a lot, not, not, not a lot of use in strategy, really. And then, of course, there was a dodgy accountant, wasn't there? Judas, the dodgy accountant. Excuse me, Demetra. <laughs> so where's this whole notion of greatness going? So you say, well, let's, let's look again at this little child. You look at that little child, and what goes through your mind when you see? When you see the little one come up here later on in the morning, just what do you think? You think, oh, look at it. It's beautiful, yes, but, you know, there's something of dep total dependency about that child. There's imperfection. There's a need for it to grow to maturity. There's something about that little one that's just inadequate, isn't there? You know, it needs instruction. And the lovely thing is it's waiting for instruction. Amazing thing about little children, they're so eager and keen to learn. So receptive to information, aren't they? And they're looking for the guidance. Why? Because they just know they don't know everything. And most of all, there's a weakness about them, isn't there? There's a, a sense of no strength. It's almost, you know, you look at a little child and you think to yourself, they've got nothing and they need everything. You don't see them with pride, you don't see arrogance, you don't see haughtiness, you don't see a self-assertion. No. And actually, when you're looking at a little child, even in these day, those days, and today, they are the lowest on the social scale. Oh, yes, they are. Oh, yes, we must, you know. There will be no child living in poverty in, by such and such a date. I think it was Bob Hawke said that. They're still ranting on about it. And they're still killing them left, right and centre. And they're still starving. Look, we could go on, but let's not. All right? What's the point? The point is the Lord Jesus is saying, all those things that we've just talked about, you know, all that weakness, that inadequacy, that desire to learn, that humility, that submissiveness, he says, all of those things represent true greatness in the kingdom of heaven. Not in the kingdom of men. Not as men call greatness, but as God sees greatness. Because what we're dealing with here is the subject of humility. That's what we're dealing with. And humility is something that begins in the person's mind. Humility, humbleness of mind, as the scripture says. And then it is unfolded in the life of the believer. It declares itself in its behaviour. Now, being humble, humility, is not going around sort of thinking bad things about yourself. True humility comes when you're not thinking of yourself at all. You see that? It's a difference. And until you come to this point where you've got a right attitude about yourself, and you are right realisation about yourself, your inadequacy, your weakness, <coughs> your need for submission, to be taught, to learn, to have an absence of pride, haughtiness and arrogance. Until you get to that, you will never understand greatness in the kingdom of heaven. Hence, become like a little child. Lesson number one. No, not self-esteem. It's one of the most leavenous, evil doctrines that have come into the church. The necessity for self-esteem. You talk to that little babe this morning and say, have you got any self-esteem? 
I mean, it just doesn't fit. It's not even there. Love of self, another pernicious teaching. We must love ourselves first before we can love our neighbour. We love ourselves first before we can even love our God. Rubbish is within the sinful heart of mature individuals, mature adults, to love themselves. Or nerdy anyway, and it's in a sinful and selfish way. Lesson number one, become like little children. Except you be converted and become as little children. Now conversion, it's the idea of turning around, all right? <clears throat> now, the beauty of this is I like to think of it like this. You're going in one direction and you suddenly realise that humility, humbleness of mind, and in order to put that into practice, or even to change your thinking, you've got to go a complete reverse on what you would naturally be going in. Only... All right, think of it like this. You're going in that direction and you're going to be converted and become as a little child. You turn right around and you go in the opposite direction. Stop there. Now turn that vertically. In other words, in our own thinking, in our own mind, and our own progress, oh, we're going up 180 degrees. We're going down. That's the point of humility. And that's the point of being converted. You see your weakness, your inadequacy, your dependence and your need of guidance and your submission. And you say, until you have even begun to do that and think like that, you cannot and you have not even entered into the realm. You haven't even begun to start, if you're right, into the realm of the kingdom of heaven. I mean, this is the Apostle Paul, you see. That tremendous man, and he was a tremendous man. He had a massive intellect. He was the rising star of the Jewish nation. He was going to be the greatest theologian, <clears throat> the greatest advocate, the strong man of the nation, the rising star. One day he saw Jesus, the resurrected Christ, and the light above the brightness of the noonday sun. And what does he say? He says, Lord, what would you have me to do? See the submission in that. See the brokenness in that. See the dependency in that. Do you see the weakness in that? The mighty man, Paul, the Pharisee of the Pharisees, just like a little child. And the Lord says to him, you go into the city, it'll be told you, told you. You won't be making your plans anymore, Paul. It'll be told you what you must do. And there he is in his blindness. He, he cannot see. And that's when you start to realize humility, when you realize of your own strength, you cannot see. You must be led. Submit and be broken down. You won't even begin to appreciate the meaning of greatness and not even enter into the kingdom of heaven. For greatness is not you and I ascending above others. But it is as we come to that point of humility and we become like a little child. We join the serried ranks of those who have come the same way and entered into the kingdom of heaven to find that all are great in the kingdom of heaven and greatness is a blessing to be enjoyed by all who have humbled themselves and come by way of the bowing down at the foot of the cross in the meekness and brokenness of spirit and the broken and the contrite heart. And it is enjoyed by all who are there. And there is no sense of ascendancy one above another. But if you would be greater still than what you think when you're already the greatest, then you become the servant of all. You've got to go down again in order to rise up. These are tremendous truths, you know. You've got to go down even lower. Lesson one, it's to become like a little child. Lesson two, and that's found in verse five, 
It says there, who shall, shall receive one such little one in my name receives me. Break the verse down, because this is a... All right, I'd like to go around and say, tell me what that verse means. <laughs> it's huge. But we'll just summarise it. Whoso, whoso, whoso shall receive. Now that means the idea there is you are embracing that one. All right? You are wanting this little child. You are welcoming this little child. Such a little child in my name receives me. In my name is really forcing home the point. If you will receive a little child in the same way that I receive a little child. Right? That's how you do it. That unreserved welcome that was ever in the heart of the Saviour for the children. Didn't he say, later on in chapter 19, won't he say to them, suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, you get the picture there that the children were automatically drawn to him and they wanted to go to him. They, wanted to, they just wanted to go towards him and he says, you let them come. Because you see, in his heart and in his ways there was ever a welcome. There was always warmth and there was always the readiness to receive a little child. I say it again, a child, a Christian should always be a lover of children. If you don't like children, you're not like the master. And perhaps one of the possibilities of the sins of old age, and there's a few sins of old age we need to avoid as we're getting older, is to get irritable with children. Okay? Be careful. If you're finding yourself so old, you're irritable with children. Oh, they're nice when they're in their sweet, pretty dresses and they look so lovely and they say, yes, sir, no, sir, please, sir, thank you very much. You know, it's very nice, those children. We're talking about a child that he just called off the street. And you find yourself just getting irritated, you know, and getting intolerant and a bit cranky because irritability, crankiness, intolerance is a, is a potential sin of old age. It really is. It's a besetting sin of old age. You know, that you can't cope with the noise they make and they're so spontaneous and exuberant. And they keep forgetting to do the right thing. That's a child. That's a child's heart. That's a picture of what we are like as wandering sinful sheep in the shepherd's tender care. What we're like as grown people. That tendency to just, oh, do more than we should. But at the same time, there's a loveliness here in the spontaneity of the heart of a child. Don't get too old and irritable that you can't stand them. Huh? Because you're not getting like the master. And the challenge of old age is to get more and more like him and to be seen in your behaviour and in your thinking of your mind. You see, there's more to it than that. He had that welcome and that warmth, but he explains why. He says, for as such is the kingdom of heaven. So he looked at the child and he said, I see in this child potential for the kingdom of heaven. When you see a child in that light, when you look at children like that, then you'll start to receive them as he receives them. And so for every parent, when their child is born, what do they cover them for? The kingdom of heaven. Come into the church here and you see children. What's in your mind? You're coveting them. What for? The kingdom of heaven. Be careful. Satan's always out to get the children. Do you remember when Moses was going to leave the land of Egypt and he went into Pharaoh and says, God says, let my people go that they might serve me. After a while he says, oh, all right, you can go, but leave your little ones behind. Ah, never, says Moses. I won't go without them. Never. 
says Moses, I won't go without them. You see them in their potential as the children coming into the kingdom of God. And then he says that incredible thing, he that receives a little child in my name, urging us to do it as he did it, he then says, he receives me. What do you think that means? Have you ever, have you ever sat down and as you read your Bible and said, whatever does that mean? I did. <clears throat> and I spent hours and it didn't come to me. I hate to tell you, but I <clears throat> had a rather long bath last night and my pondering in the bath water, which was nice and warm and relaxing, it came to me what it meant. Look, it, it means this. See, he himself, we're thinking of the child in humility, right? Now, he himself is the ultimate example of humility. He himself embodies all the very, all these beautiful features to be found in that child. He was the one who came down. Wondrous thy humiliation to accomplish our salvation. Philippians, let this mind be in you. See, humility of mind. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient. Can you see the child feature coming through there? Can you see it? Do you understand that... See, they're thinking, well, we're going to receive him as Messiah, as king, as mighty and powerful. He says, no, 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 look at this little child. Get it straight where you're coming. This is not the time for that. You're receiving me... Not now, not now at this moment, in power and great glory, that's to come, yes. But do you, do you not understand I've come down to seek and to save that which is lost? Do you not understand that I've humbled myself? Actually, when I came, I didn't come to a palace, I came to a manger. And when I came, I came into this world as a babe. Isn't that tremendous? The saviour who saved us, though he's mighty in power and glory. He humbled himself even as a little child. And he was born amongst men to be the saviour of mankind. He says, when you receive me, you are receiving not one robed in kingly splendour, ruling in power, enabling you to ascend to greatness in the, as the worldly kingdoms would understand it. You are receiving one who's despised, a babe, a Nazarene, one who has no beauty in him that we should desire him, one who is indeed going to be a lamb led to slaughter and he opens not his mouth. You're getting the child picture as I'm painting it for you? And what you're doing is says, it's one who's going to be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And it is through that lowliness of the Lord Jesus and that humiliation and that suffering that the conquest and the greatness and the power will come. Now that's how he's adjusting their thinking. Meanwhile he says my kingdom's not of this world else would my servants fight for ascendancy over even Pilate, you who is delivering me up. So he who receives a little one in my name receives me. Powerful, beautiful. Next lesson. Sum up what we've got. Number one, in our presence, a child should know instinctively that they are loved and they are welcomed. Whether it's in your family as parents, that's important. Well, every parent loves their children. Hmm. Many love themselves more than their children today. The grandparents, hmm. Many of them are off sort of doing their own thing. 
forgetting they've got little grandchildren to set an example for, to let them know there's an outstretched arm, to love and bless them at any time of day. Eh? So they should know that they are welcome, number one. Number two, we should look at every child and see them and be jealous for them, with a jealousy which is of God, for we want them for the kingdom of heaven. And every time you look at a child, remember the king who came down and he humbled himself. Hence we get to verse 6, you must never offend a child. What does that mean? You must never stumble them. You must never cause a child to sin. You must never bring to that child the awful pain that comes from them learning to sin. You must never be the one who spoiled their innocence. It's a dreadful thing if my child stumbled because me as a parent set the bad example, set the wrong example. I want to just say something in passing. I've been staggered to see children go astray from homes that you would think they would never happen. And it's really, it, it becomes quite upsetting to find out one of the parents has got a secret sin. Don't think you'll get away with it. Your children might never know about it. But if you've got a secret sin, it'll be reaped in the pain of your children. It will be. I'm sorry. I've seen it over and over and over. So what do we do? We must never be the cause of a child being stumbled. Now, it's not always true, but just a warning as we pass. And the Lord Jesus says this tremendous thing here. He says, he says, offences will come. He said, in other words, children are going to be stumbled and caused to sin. Then he says, oh, woe to the world. There's pathos in this woe, you know. Oh, it's a bit like Jerusalem when he said, judgment's coming on you, Jerusalem. But then he went out and he wept over the city. How often would I have gathered you as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And he said, you wouldn't come. Now, it's exactly the same kind of pain as he sees the world is going to be a sad, sad place. A place where there will be offences, where there will be stumbling blocks put in the way of children and there will be cause to sin. And then he says, woe to the man. Now that's a voice of judgment. There's no compassion and sympathy here. This is like a thunder from a holy God. Woe to the man by whom the offence has come. And I just say in passing, but very definitely there is a damnation for every pedophile. One of the greatest blots on the professing church's history is the last 20 years and what has been exposed. Hey, you say, oh, it's not, not our fault, it's not the church. Yes, it is the church's fault. People should come into the church and the house of God and come into the presence of God and sense the fear of the Lord, of the presence of a holy God amongst his people. Instead of that, they flourished and they rise to places of prominence and preachers are involved. God have mercy. He doesn't have mercy doesn't do that in this case. He says there's a damnation. It's better that they ceased to be. That's what he's really saying. Get that millstone, he said. The, the, the upper mill, the big millstone that you use a, an animal to turn the stone. And he said, hang it around his neck and throw him in the sea. You see what a dreadful end. I'm telling you what, he's saying, not saying that. He's saying he's better off doing that than facing the judgment that will be his or hers in the day to come. And you look at the world today and I tell you what, We've got a society that's making our children to sin. That's what the internet's really all about for children. What's it doing? It's teaching them evil. It's spreading a net for their feet so that they will stumble. You see that? The very education system, what's it for? It's designed that way to 
assault their innocence. That's what it's for. That's why you're careful what you tell your children when you tell their children. Take care you're not injuring their innocence and staining it with information that they don't need to have and they're not ready for. Pass on. Woe to the world, it's going to be a sad place. And it is a sad place. A very sad place. You can say quite plainly that, and I say, I think it's a quote, if it's not, it's right anyway. (laughs) You can measure the greatness of a society by the way it treats its children. Do you remember the nation of Israel? Do you remember how low they sunk? When were they at their lowest? When they caused their children to pass through the fire to be offered as sacrifices to Moloch. I mean, that is inconceivable. But that was Israel that knew of the true and living God. Verse 10, don't despise them. Don't despise them. Never hold a child in low esteem. Do you know why you shouldn't despise them? The Lord gives the reason for why he says this. And it's very, it's again, it's so beautiful. Despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. He says, look, and then he says, the Son of Man, he's come to save that which is lost. And then he says, even so, it's not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Don't, 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 don't despise them, he says. Why don't despise them? Well, the angels don't despise them. They've got the angels in heaven in the very presence of the Father. What are angels doing there up there in the presence of God? They're the messengers for those who will be the inheritors or who inherit salvation. Heaven's angels are already at the disposal of the children while they're little children. They're watching in heaven's courts for them as ready to be sent out as messengers on their behalf. Angelic services are currently available for, for uh, little children. Point one, I'll say more in a minute. Number two, the Lord Jesus says, I don't despise them. I've come to save that which is lost. What's he referring to? All of mankind. No, he's talking about a child. Stick in the context. Don't spoil it. When he's talking about mankind, he says, I've come to seek and to save, the Son of Man's come to seek and to save that which is lost. All right. Here he says, I've come not to seek and to save, but just to save what is lost. Got it? Save what is lost. Why is somebody lost? Because they're born in Adam. Lost. Why is somebody judged in the Bible? When we get to Revelation, we'll get this a bit clearer. They're judged according to their works. They're held responsible for their behaviour and judged accordingly, but already lost in Adam. The child's born. Has it done the sins that will, for which it will be held responsible and damned? No. But it is still lost. Why? Because it's the child of Adam with a sinful nature. The Lord says, I have come to save, not to seek and to save, to save what is lost. In other words... My sacrifice and atonement will cover that little child in its innocence. We are moving into the realm where we're getting the soundest teaching on what happens to a little child, a baby, when it dies. The agony of many a parent and many, the weeping of many a mother. What has happened to my baby? I tell you now, he he or she is safe. 
in the arms of Jesus, for he has saved that little one who by nature and birth was lost. You catch it? We'll see some more in a minute. It's an incredible truth coming out here. And he's saying, I don't despise them. Angels don't despise them. Your Father in heaven doesn't despise them. It's not his wish that one of these little ones should perish. To despise a child is to be out of harmony with the angels, with the Father and with the Son. To offend a child is to make it more profitable not to be better drowned. The judgment's worse. To receive a child is to receive me. And the final lesson is just don't lose them. Just don't lose your children. What do you mean by that? Well, let's look at it. He tells a, a remarkable story. <clears throat> How think ye if a man have a hundred sheep and one of them be gone astray? He doesn't leave the ninety and nine and go into the mountains and seek that which is gone astray. And if so be, he find it. Verily, I say unto you, he rejoices more of that sheep than of the ninety and nine that went not astray. All right? So the picture is quite different to Luke 15, by the way. There's a significant difference here. Some people say that part of this was inserted by the uh, translators of the scripture by mistake. The copyists made a mistake and sort of put a bit from Luke 15 in here. They did not. <laughs> this is quite in a different context. What does it say? The man's got the hundred sheep. In Luke 15, and he loses one of them. It's not that what's, that's not what we're saying here. It says here, and he, the one of these sheep, goes astray. Right? He goes astray. Then he says, well, won't you leave the others and really go looking for the one who has gone astray? Something within that child has risen up to turn itself away. It is rebelling now. It is growing, as it were, into the teenager, you see. That's what's happening. And there's something going on that's making it want to go astray. Careful, because the Lord says, you'll go and seek it, won't you? Luke 15 is till he find it. This one is, if so be, he finds it, perhaps. Perhaps. It's a terrible thing when a child brought up in a Christian home who knows the way of righteousness and knows what's right and then turns in rebellion and goes astray. It's the greatest worry of every parent and there's an awful fear in your mind, if so be, he finds it. But I just want to say this to you. Though it's a daunting task in the rearing of your children in today's world, would you please realise you've got the angels on your side? Would you then realise you've got the Lord Jesus, as it were, on your side? Would you please realise that you've got your Heavenly Father and he is on your side? And if God be for us, who can be against us? Let us take fresh courage. Let us be godly parents, godly men and women in this church who care Godly men and women who pray for children. Be a, be a godly parent that's like Manoah and his wife. You know what they did when they got their little child, child Samson? Do you know what they did? They said, Lord, teach us what to do with this child. I mean, you pray that when they're born. You pray it all the time after that. And you know what? This child, not teach us what to do with our children. You know why? Because every child's different. And you will need different wisdom and different skills to meet the need of an individual child. And I want to leave that with the parents here this morning. Number one, teach us what to do with a child. That's how you pray about your children. You say, oh, I hadn't thought to pray like that. Come on, don't you love them? 
Don't you see them as beautiful for God? Don't you cover them, cover, cover them for the kingdom of heaven like the Lord Jesus did? And you know, keep in mind what Hannah did with her child. She gave him to the Lord all the days of his life. Think about Manoah giving that Samson in order to raise him up as a judge, in order to judge Israel. And bring your children up, and I won't develop this, but just sow the seed for you to read. Bring them up like Nazarites. I've been a many a long day since I've heard somebody speak on the Nazarites' vow. Go and look it up, would you please? I think it's Numbers. I think it's chapter 6. Look up the Nazarites' vow. John the Baptist was brought up as a Nazarite from the day he was born. Alright? So was Samuel. And so was Samson. And what does it mean to be a Nazarite? Just in three simple ways. A Nazarite from, from, from the birth... It meant that the Nazarite means that there's a special vow of consecration to the Lord made by and for that individual, right? In relation to the children, when it comes from birth, there were three guidelines. Number one, they were careful what the child fed on. Number two, they were careful what the child touched. And number three, their children looked different to any other children. Alright? Why were they careful what they ate? Because it might defile them. Maybe Daniel's in here somewhere. Right? Why were they careful what they touched, the dead body? Because it might defile them. What was the consequences? They looked different. You could actually see a child in the street and say, that's a Nazarite. Some parents have consecrated that child for the Lord. I remember when we were down in Canberra, we went to the Messiah, and a family came with their father. There was, the mother wasn't there. There was five children. And you just stared at those children, and you thought, they're the Lord's people. You knew straight away. As a matter of fact, the mistake we made is I should have gone and tapped the man on the shoulder. I said, you're, you're a believer, aren't you? You're a Christian. I can see it in your children. You get the idea? The Nazarites fail. Bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. God help us this morning to get a different view on children to get heaven's view, to get the angel's view, to get the master's view, and to get the father's view. Amen. So, Father, we bow our hearts this morning, for we are truly grateful for the tremendous instruction, the way the Lord Jesus took the time out from that busy, earthly ministry and program to teach us the meaning and the lessons that can be learned from a little child. We pray this morning we might learn a little better how to humble ourselves. We might learn a little better how to care for our children, that every parent's heart might be encouraged in their task. And our God and Father, we may see families, whole families, growing up together in the fear of the Lord, we might be a church who love our children. We might be those who welcome the children from the street. We're so glad to have a Sunday school with little children in. We long to see it filled even fuller. Maybe with children from the street. Lord, hear our prayer. In the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.